This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Is one of the big pieces of advice. And also the the ability to communicate with people is really important. Mm -hmm. Um, When I was interviewing people. Welcome to Game Dev Advice the Game Developers Podcast, your place for resources and in-depth conversations with other game development professionals. I'm your host, John J.P. Podlasic. I've worked at 10 different game companies, starting back in 1989 with the TurboGrafx-16. Over the decades, I've developed games like Mortal Kombat, Avengers Initiative, Beavis and Butthead, and numerous others. I now work for a startup called Level X. But this podcast isn't about me. It's about you and the game development community. So if you have questions or ideas, give a call, 224-484-7733, or go to the gamedevadvice.com website. So let's kick things off with the new Game Dev Advice. I have a great episode today with 3D artist-turned-filmmaker Mehran Targoli. After a decade-plus working in AAA at Midway Games, Shiny Entertainment, and Double Helix, Mehran transitioned to directing. His work includes feature films, music videos, and commercial projects, including the award-winning short, Committed. He's also contributed to projects for clients like Justin Bieber, Fox Studios, and Image 819. In 2019, he co-founded Cult Cinema, LLC. Curse of Aurora is his feature film directorial debut, and is currently enjoying a successful theater release in Canada. Enjoy. Hey, Mayron. How's it going? Uh, pretty good. How you doing, JP? I'm doing good. So where are you calling in from tonight? I am in beautiful Newport Beach, California. Ah, over by Laguna. That's a beautiful area there. Yeah. Yeah, North Laguna. Yeah, I, I, uh, right in the yeah, water. There's a big fires right near here, though. Just, uh, just yesterday or a day before, a big fire is about... I don't know, 10, 15 miles away, and it was pretty smoky. Yeah, I, I've been hearing about evacuations and power outages and all those kind of things. It's kind of a scary time out there. Speaking of scary, uh, COVID-19, um, how are you doing with everything going on? And You know, it's um, it's okay. It's more of a mental issue than anything else because I've been f- mm-hmm. self-employed for so long, basically working out of my living room or bedroom, you know, writing and graphics or whatever I'm doing for a while that the adjustment of not leaving the house sometimes is really not much of an adjustment for me. Mm-hmm. But there are weird things where I can't travel as much. I can't see people the way I, w- I would like to. Yeah. It's affecting the ability to create projects, which is which makes it difficult. But um, mm-hmm. I mean, it sucks, but it's it's I'm dealing with it okay. So tell me about your current role. You got some cool things going on. Yeah, well, I am um, an independent filmmaker, like writer, director, editor. Mm-hmm producer. And I'm, you know, proud to say that I, I finally 
have finished a couple of feature films and right. one of them just finished its run in theaters in Quebec City mm-hmm. and Montreal and it will be coming to the states early next year and the other one we're still waiting on some time frame but the other one will also be coming out either first or second quarter of next year so for listeners like you you made that pivot right from a 3D artist into the film career like yeah like I worked in video games for about 11 years I think right the first job I had I worked with you yeah at uh, Terraglyph in Schaumburg Illinois <laughs> You know, working on amazing licensed Nickelodeon products. Oh, yes. All right, right, right. Got that short window. Cat dog. That's right. The game that never shipped. But I did the VO. Yeah, that that should have been the subtitle for the game. Cat dog, (laughs) the game that never shipped. Yeah. I got a free trip out to LA and uh, do the voiceover with some of the actors. And that was interesting. But yeah. Kind of cool. It's funny. I don't remember a whole lot about that game. I mean, I was, that was my first industry job. I had worked on one other game at Terraglyph at the time. Mm. The one thing I really remember, aside from a couple good friends that I made from back there, yourself included, was um, I remember coming into your office because you were the producer (laughs) and you would have been my boss at the time. And I was like, you know, close the door. And I was like, I got to tell you, I'm I'm giving you my notice because I'm leaving to go to Midway Games. (laughs) And then you look back at me and said, by the way, I'm also going to Midway Games. Great minds think alike. Like, exactly. I was like, oh, wow. Like, I'm glad that's what I was in there to tell you. Because if I was like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about buying a house. You're like, well, I'm leaving. So yeah, it would have been a little worse. And how long you were at Midway? Um, I was at Midway for about five years. Okay. Sports games, yeah, right? Sports games. Yeah. I worked on, I was, I was hired there to work on Slugfest which was like the baseball version of NBA Jam mm-hmm. or Blitz. Yep. That was fun. That was a lot of work, but it was it was fun. So your first job at, at Terraglyph, like how did you how did you get started in the industry to get that first job at Terraglyph? I went to I went to college for like studio graphic design mm-hmm. art and at, at some point when I was in college, I sort of got the urge to want to make films. Um, but I didn't have a film degree and I was basically done. Like I was a senior and I'm like, okay, I'm not going to do four more years of college. I got to yeah. need to make money. I, didn't grow up with a silver spoon in my mouth or anything. Yeah, you gotta, and, um, gotta earn it. Yeah, pay so, your bills. so what I was, exactly, gotta pay your bills. And so what I started to think is, well, I had been discovering that there was this 3D art thing. There was this 3D <laughs> animation. What year was this? And I, yeah, like this was, this was really new. We're talking, you know, like Terminator 2, Jurassic Park era. Okay. And I was like, wow, that's just so fascinating. So I ended up sort of teaching myself a little bit of that. And then I got a job at a toy design company in Chicago. And I was doing some toy design work along Meyer with Glass? the data. And, uh, it wasn't Meyer Glass. It was actually a company called Learning Curve. And okay. uh, they were they were at West Loop, which I think also Meyer Glass was. Yeah. But they worked on, uh, they had the US license for Thomas the Tank Engine. Wow. And I would I'd do about 25% of my job was working with the, the one toy designer at this company of 100 marketing people and one toy designer. <laughs> and we, the again, bad ratio. Sort of, the real bad ratio, <laughs> but they were, it was kind of a license to print money, just, just like Meyer Glass, from what I understand. Yeah. Like you have this license and you just got to put this stuff out and people are going to buy it. Yeah. So I'd work on puzzle pieces and whatnot. So what ended up happening is I went from there and then I was just sort of dabbling with this 3D and then I ended up doing a few jobs for them, which was like while I was working there, I was kind of freelancing, also designing a few toys in 3D because it was a lot easier for them than the way they used to actually do it at the time is the toy designer would draw like front and back and side images. Then Mm -hmm. they would send that to China and then China would work on it and they would do this weird video conferencing that cost like $10 a minute or something. Wow. And they look at what they were doing and then, you know, a month later, something would be shipped back to them and they'd say, okay, this is good. And it would seem kind of crazy. And so I ended up getting a couple of 
gigs for them mm -hmm. where I would just build something. And I think at the time I was using something called Hash Animation Master to do the 3D. And I would do these simple mm -hmm. mock-ups that they could rotate around. Yeah. And then I got a job in a graphic design firm after that, but I still just wanted to do 3D. And I, that's how I would pitch myself to these companies. And I ended up getting a job at a graphic design firm. And then I was just working on like shampoo bottles and labels, which was <laughs> fun and great. And quite honestly, when I look back, in many ways, that was like the best time of my life because I, I was out of work <laughs> at five. I was working in downtown Chicago by the Merchandise Mart. Yeah. And I was making more money than I ever made before. And it was really low stress. And, you know, looking back, it was great, but it didn't make that much money. Right. And I wasn't creatively fulfilled. Right. So what I did, was everything was great it seemed and I was just like I'm just not happy and so I quit my job and I moved to Seattle to learn how to use soft homage mm. and I went there for half a year I did this intensive training. I made an animation. I think I had a job at Terraglyph before I even moved back to Chicago. I think I showed them my reel. Okay. And they're like, yeah, come on in. And then I, you know, I had an interview. Wow, soft homage. Yeah. I, that's how I broke into the industry at Terraglyph, a company I never heard of before. I just saw that they were looking for somebody with soft homage experience. Crazy I said they probably had expensive like computers. Yeah, the SGI. Yeah. Like Seafoam green, a $55,000 desktop. You oh know, my God. Yeah. Like, the hardware is insane. insane. That was actually why I went to Seattle to learn soft homage is because I guess there was something called there was 3D Studio at the time, which ran on a PC. Now, all I had was a Mac. Mm -hmm. And so I, there was only a certain software that I could use, but I kept reading that, you know, Softimize, what they did Jurassic Park on, and they did all the effects. I'm like, okay, well, how do I do that? And I, I found two places in Illinois <laughs> that actually had a license because I guess Softimize in, well, I guess what year would that be? 98, 90, 90, 99. Yeah. Soft costs like $70,000 or something for the software. And then you had a computer that costs 50 or 60 grand to run it. Yeah. And I'm like, well, I, I can't take that kind of loan. That's more than I paid for all of college and everything. <laughs> so right. I tried to just do anything. I tried to get a job, you know, like I would work for free just so I can get access, but I couldn't, I couldn't get in the door. Mm -hmm. And I found a school that said, oh, we have SGIs and we have soft And you, you learn it and you have access 24 hours a day. And so I was like, yeah, that's, Wow. That's what I'll do. That's the closest I could get. And amazingly enough, like kind of while I was there, just before I was there, Microsoft bought Softimage and ported it to the PC. Mm, and right. uh, and then I was able to get a, let's call it a learning version <laughs> when I got home to learn, you know, to have it at home and keep practicing. Right. Yeah. It, it was such a gated community at that point. Like, it was so To gated, get access. Yeah. It's not anything like now, right? I mean, it's just like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thinking back about this, like, what do you wish you had known when you had started? So basically to, to not hesitate which is the same lesson I have back then that I have even now, mm. because back then I did try to get into ILM and didn't get in, but there were a lot of other places that I could have got in that I didn't really try for because I didn't think that I had enough. Mm -hmm. It's the same story, I think, with games. I think right out of college, if I had tried to just directly go to Midway, I probably would have got in because I had probably had more skills than a lot of the people that were actually at Midway at the time, because my skills were a little bit more current. Yeah. And there were people there that had worked on games for a while. And I learned that working there, the people were like, oh yeah, we used to do graphics with a joystick. And you know, <laughs> you know, and I was already using 3D. So if I had gone in directly, and I, I guess it's sort of a hindsight is 2020 thing, mm -hmm. but like I might have actually worked on NBA Jam or the original Blitz or something and actually would have been financially better off because I would have been on a much smaller team that became much more successful. Yeah. And by the time I got in, there were much larger teams that were still somewhat successful, but not as successful. But now there was far more mouths to feed. Yeah. And, um, and the industry just was so different. And if I had just started even four years earlier, I probably would have been able to buy a house in Chicago because it wasn't quite as expensive. Mm -hmm. I probably would have had a bigger bonus. A lot of things where like, I just wish I didn't hesitate. Right, right. Now, likewise for now, I kind of wish I had just gotten into films much earlier, like 10 years earlier than I did. Mm. Uh, but everybody's ready when they're ready. Yeah. 
when I had my interview at Midway with a guy named Ed Jankowski. Um, oh, yeah, I know he's Ed. One, yeah, artist, yeah. You know, Ed, yeah. Yeah, good guy. He asked me, what did I want to do? Where did, I, where did I see myself in five years? And I remember telling him that I wanted to be making my own movies. Like, that's what I wanted to do. And yeah. I remember that whole conversation. And he was like, wait, you don't, you don't want to be working here in five years? And I, I had to backpedal. I'm like, well, you know, I'd love to work here, but I'd also like to be working on my own stuff. I'd like to get to the point where I can, where I can actually make a movie on my own or an animation. Mm-hmm. And if that turns into a career, that's great. But if I could do both of these things, that's great. And of course, games are so all engulfing, all, yeah. all consuming, yeah. Yeah. that it's hard to find the time. I had no idea the of hours I was getting, I was signing up. For. Right. You're like, oh, I'll be done at five o'clock and uh, just go do my mm-hmm. thing. Just like I was when I was exactly. modeling shampoo bottles. And now you're like, this is intense. This is all, all in here, man. I have no time to Absolutely. do, to do anything. No, that's cool too, that you've, you've always had that vision, right? You, you've always been like, this is one step towards my eventual goal of, of making movies, uh-huh. you know? So I, I give you credit for following that and not just... I mean, there are people I met along the way. There's a guy, actually a guy that you know, Alan Noon. And I remember he's actually yeah. the one that referred me into Midway. And I think he's at Epic now. Yeah, he's back at Epic. Um, yeah, he's at Epic. He was at Magic Leap and now he's back at Epic. Yeah, he's a great guy. And um, I, I'm friends with him on Facebook. And I haven't talked to him in a long time. He's a great mm-hmm. guy. But um, I always, even from the very beginning, I envy the fact that that guy is passionate about making video games. Like for him, he was where he wanted to be all the time Mm -hmm. making games. And it seems like he still is. Like he's just like, this is my dream job. I never want to do anything else. And I'm envious of that. Right. And the only thing I do now is like I make films and that's the one thing that when I do it, I don't feel like I should be doing anything else. Mm-hmm. Whereas when I made games, I, I loved the job, but I was just like, yeah, but I'm just doing this until I can move on to actually leading, you know, a, 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 a creative project of my own, you know, a film project or, or an animation or something. Yeah. So it was always in the back of your mind. And um, right. but yeah, you, you still put forth all the effort, but in the game, exactly. but it was always like, this isn't the end result. There, there are other right. ideas. It felt like a stepping stone to me in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was a fun job. Though. I mean, I, I always enjoyed, I always enjoyed the, the work. And I always enjoyed the people. I didn't necessarily, you know, like the job. I mean, the job is, it's a job. Yeah. Right. right. Model is. stadiums and rinse and repeat. Right. You know, so you were doing sure. Right. And you develop relationships with, with people back then that you're still in contact with. Right. I mean, it's funny enough. I'm, I'm still on an email thread with about eight people that I worked <laughs> with that I met at, at, I guess, I think they're all from Midway. When plus my brother who also was from Midway, yep. um, we, we worked there at the same time. So like literally even today I get anywhere from, let's say three to 50 emails a day from this same group of about eight guys. And it could be about politics. It could be about movies. It could be, it's never about sports, Um, but it's, you know, it's usually, you know, something video games, sports, toys are on the list, like Comic-Con geeky kind of stuff. And I honestly, I mean, I have thousands of emails dating back to probably about 2000. I think I started midway in 2000. So the thread probably goes back to 2001 and it started with just like the core of us, four or five of us. What are we eating for lunch today? And then that, that literally is the same thread of people still sending emails out with a few subject lines and I get them every single That's day. That's crazy. And because you left in 04, right? I left in 04, late, late 04, mid 04. So 16 and, years uh, later, you're still emailing these these people. That. Exactly. Basically, if we were, it's, just, it's really amazing. <laughs> no, but, that's crazy that 
those, those bonds that you developed back then still resonate. And, and then you have this email thread going. I mean, that's... Um, yeah, Midway was a really good time, actually. I mean, there was a lot of times that were really, really rough for me while I was there. But at the same time, like, I made really good friends there mm-hmm. that I'm obviously still connected to. And I, I think back fondly about some of it, uh, even though it was it was really tough and tumultuous. And there were a lot of layoffs that I survived. And yeah. um, it was, it was you know, a lot of transition because it was when Midway was getting out of CoinOp and going into just home console and stuff. So looking back now, like, um, what, what kind of advice would you give someone trying to get their first job as both, you know, a 3D artist and as a first job, like in the film industry, like you're kind of a, it's kind of a twofer here. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of a twofer. It's, it's, it's pretty different and pretty the same, kind of at the same time. Okay. So for somebody getting into the game industry, it's been a few years since I was in there, but I did a lot, like my last couple of jobs in there, I had, you know, risen up the ranks a bit and I was doing interviewing of people. And mm-hmm. um, what I found, well, first thing I found was as I had been in there for a while, I was seeing people that were so young that were coming out of school with just amazing samples, like better, you know, 20 year old people coming in that had better looking stuff than seasoned veterans that were at the studio. Huh. And um, part of it could be that these people, you know, were particularly talented, but the other part of it is they had access to stuff from much, much younger. Right. So the, yeah. so they were at the point that it took many people years to get to. And I'm not saying that they're more artistic or anything than some of them could have been. It's just more about the fact that they had more exposure and then they, you know, they, they had the artistic aptitude. Yeah. But there was there was a little bit of a um, there was sort of a, uh, a parody to all the samples, like pretty much the, the people coming in for the entry level jobs were all roughly at the same level. And the thing that differentiated them was 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 very nice samples yeah. like that was obviously a big deal. So making sure you work on your craft and are able to do that was, is one of the big pieces of advice. And also then the ability to communicate with people is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was interviewing people, I wanted to have a conversation with them because having been in the industry for a while, I realized that I'm probably going to be spending 10 to 12 hours a day with this person, you know, five to seven days a week yeah. for months on end. Right. And I need to, I need to know that I can get along with them. I'm relatively easygoing. I needed to know that I was going to be stuck. You know, you're trapped with these people for many hours a day. And it doesn't mean that I want somebody that just thinks like me, mm. but I want somebody that has the, the, the ability to, to abstract a thought, the ability to look at two sides of a situation and, and then to convey that and to understand mm-hmm. is really important. So I'd say working on communication skills and your work samples would be the two biggest pieces of advice. Yeah, that's totally fair. And a lot of that is very similar to in the film industry. The hiring that I do now as, as director and producer of these films, and I, I have a team of people that I work with regularly. Like I, I co-write with someone named Lana Barron, who's been a longtime collaborator of mine. Okay. And she's great at the, the film that, that we have out right now. I worked on with her. And so we, we write together. I, I direct, uh, she often acts in these things. The two of us together, we sort of, you know, we audition people. Mm-hmm. Now it's remotely because of COVID and everything. Yeah. And we, we work on a lot of aspects together. And so that, but the type of people that I'm hiring, it's a little different because I'm hiring an actor is very different from hiring an artist. Yeah. Right? It's a job, uh, right? It's a one-time thing. Exactly. It's their, their shorter gigs. Um, I am looking for people that I can get along with, but I have, you know, it's a couple of movies I've done in the past and I've worked with some people, like some actors of course, I'm not going to mention the names, but just that were incredibly difficult. Right. And one of two things would happen, though, is the camera would turn on and either they were just talented, you know, talented enough and prepared enough all the time that they not only knew their own lines, but they knew everybody else's lines. And they also knew where everything was supposed to happen. And it makes my job very easy. Yeah. And cameras turn off and they're not as nice. Right. And that happened. <laughs> yeah. uh, the other the other thing is there are people that are just not nice to work with. And I've had this. They're not, not, they're not easy to direct and they're not easy to work with. But... 
because maybe they're the adversary in a particular scene. It actually works. Like the energy that they're putting out worked for that particular oh, role. Yeah. So it's very, and because it's a short term, I'm not looking as much for personality as I am looking for um, for somebody to give something that's going to appear on the screen. Mm-hmm. In, in the auditions you do my Zoom, I'm, I'm assuming obviously those are live and all that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, I have- Well, actually on our last one, we did both. Again, everything being so virtual and, and cell phones changed the world so much yeah. that initially for, for this most recent one, the, the horror film, which is called Curse of Aurora, mm-hmm. uh, for that film, we placed casting calls because we- I mean, even at the time, so so my partner Lana actually lives in North Carolina and I live in California. And because we were on two different coasts, um, it didn't make sense for me to fly there. It's very low budget, what we were doing. So it didn't make sense to spend the money for me to fly there mm-hmm. and hold auditions, especially there's not quite as many people in North Carolina to do that anyway. Yeah. But then it also didn't make sense to fly her here, even though there's a lot of people here in California, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of actors, but it didn't make sense to fly her here. So what we did was we did a casting call on a couple of different services. And the way it, the way that some of this stuff works, which is interesting, is you kind of look at like a laundry list of people um, and you put in some criteria and it shows you pictures and you can look at reels. And then what you can do is you can actually just click, kind of like ordering something on Amazon, yeah. say, I want you to audition, I want you to audition. And then they get an email. And then these people would, you know, we'd send them what's called a script side, which is an excerpt yeah. of the script that has their character. In. We'd send it to them and then they would film it and send it back to us. We would watch those and we'd sort of weed out who we liked, who we didn't like. Mm-hmm. And so we were able to cast a very wide net across the whole country. And uh, and then we would follow up to, with the people that we liked. And so we had a number of hmm. follow-ups, but we watched, you know, we probably had a follow-up with 10% of the people that actually okay. submitted. I think to Terryglyph, right, when we were working on um, Clue Junior game. I did not work yeah, on that. And we were auditioning people and we did a casting and this kind of disheveled, um, just kind of angry looking character came in and was reading the parts and he wasn't doing very well. And you could tell he had some health issues and something wasn't right. And I was just like, what's with that dude? You, you know, and um, after he left and it ended up being Del Close, Del Close, the founder of Second City, right? Like, oh, wow. Yeah, like, like he taught comedy to Jim Belushi yeah. and Farley and like he's like the godfather you know of comedy and um he had wow. he was well past you know his time and I think his skull is is in a glass jar somewhere at Second City because he was he's kind really? of like yeah he's like this uh huh. comedy legend was amazing I, I guess you know in his prime but like man that casting call he he just looked he was not in his prime and it was such a weird experience to then later learn who that was and what how significant of a, a person he was in the industry. So yeah, additions, weird shit, right? <laughs> yeah, I'd say, yeah. it, it, it is weird. And yeah, again, people can, people can, you know, be, it can be mis- very misleading. You could yeah. be totally, I mean, I have definitely had issues where, you know, an actor, an actor sort of does a great pre-recorded audition and then you get them on set and either it's nerves or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, whatever it happens to be, something just doesn't work. Either they can't work with other people when it comes to it. Oh, and, yeah. You know, at some point it's, it is a leap of faith. Like there's, you can't 100% be sure about somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. 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 Until you rely on the editor to fix that. Right. Yeah. yeah it's like, you know, in terms of like advancing your career, like, you know, again, you've been on industry for a while, but uh, anecdotally so looking at things, yeah, like in, in terms video of games, video games sure. and in, you know, in, it, film. in film. Like, so I, I definitely think, again, it's it's sort of like who you know is very important. Mm-hmm. Um, after I got into the game industry, which I got into on my own, like zero connections whatsoever, it was just that I had a reel that people liked. Mm-hmm. Uh, after that, I switched 
jobs, I think three times over the course of my career. I think that's what it was. And I never looked for work. I mean, there was a period that I was looking for work and I ended up not doing any interviews, but I was sort of threw some uh, resumes around. But after that, every job I had was just somebody's like, hey, we're looking for somebody. Are you interested in interviewing? It was just, it was sort of keeping the network, keeping up with people. And then at the same time, of course, doing the work, like being being prepared when opportunity does. Yeah, doing good stuff, right? Uh, Right, to keep your name in good graces. Right. And, and, and then that's number one, you know, like having a good output and, but then also not, not necessarily burning bridges with people either, you know, trying to be respectful of people so that people like to be around you, I think to a degree. Yeah. Although in games, I feel like probably the work is more important than your personality, but mm-hmm. it's, it's not insignificant. Like it's probably maybe 60, 40, um, because if you're really, really amazing what you do in games, people will probably put up with you being kind yeah. of jerks. Right. Yeah. yeah. I have been around those people too. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know, maybe some people would say I'm one of those people. I don't know. Yeah. Like I think, I think those two things are there like you, but you definitely got to be, you got to be prepared. I would say somebody looks to advance in the industry. Cause I know, you know, now I know people have been in the industry a long time. And one mm-hmm. of the things I see is also keeping your skills current because game, mm-hmm. game development, game technology changes so much. Right. From generation to generation. And it's not just the consoles changing, but if you're as an artist, like literally the tools that people are using to create games is significantly changing mm-hmm. all the time. And when I look at the tool set of what somebody uses now to create game art, it's not even the same things people were using five years ago. Like yeah, it's literally a whole right. different chain. Mm-hmm. It's and it's not just Photoshop and your 3D program anymore. Right. It's substance and ZBrush and Maya and Photoshop and something else to do the same thing that I used to do, but they're doing Blender it a much higher. And, yeah, yeah. All these things. Right, Blender. Yeah. So it's it's really something. I mean, it's 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 absolutely incredible. But um, I do remember one thing I, I remember from games, and I've carried over is I just never would stop learning when I worked on games. Mm-hmm. That, that was that was the job more than anything was to continuously learn. Yeah, uh, otherwise you just become outdated, and yeah. you know you're like, hey, hey, what, what about my softimage? And like, we're not, yeah, we're not doing softimage. Like, uh, no, but yeah. I'm really good at softimage. It's like, yeah, go be an eight track tape repairman too, right? Like, exactly. you gotta like stay current, or you're gonna become a dinosaur. Right. So, and I understand that comfort with old software. I mean, I, I still use Photoshop to this day. I mean, I still, mm-hmm. you know, I'm doing. I, I, I'm involved in a lot of different things, and so even on the films, I, I do a lot of the graphic design at times. If I'm trying to prove an idea, I do. I will do use 3D software, and I, you know, I think my skills haven't totally atrophied. I still am using yeah. some of this stuff, but I am tied to the old stuff because I'm not in those production environments. I'm using them just to solve a problem. Mm-hmm. And so it's quite a bit different, you know, just stay, stay current. It kind of made me think of something like I keep hearing about movies, you know, using game engines um, oh, yeah. to visualize stuff and to, to sh- not only shoot, but, you know, map things out and all that kind of stuff. Like, what do you know about that? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I actually do know a bit about that stuff. So one of the big things people are using is, I mean, right now, the biggest one is probably Unreal Engine mm-hmm. and they're using it most prominently in The Mandalorian. Right. And they created this wraparound LED panel um, that they're referring to as the volume. And essentially, they create a, mm-hmm. an Unreal editor scene that you can shoot with a camera and that the actors actually are living in this scene. And there are a few physical props that are extended by what's there and the cameras 
are essentially being motion tracked with the screen. So that as you move around, wow. you're actually the, the camera is seeing a 3D environment. Hmm. It's I, there's a number of videos on YouTube and there's there's stuff on Disney Plus about how they work that out. And they're not the only ones doing this, mm-hmm. but it is really impressive. And I would I would love to shoot something in some kind of a volume because it saves a ton of money on the composite or a ton of money and time on the compositing side. Yeah. The other big advantage is it lets everybody sort of live in that moment and right. um, create these worlds, right? Like you don't have to create, create these yeah. worlds and react to design that. and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, actually, when I was in games, like I said, I was using games as stepping stone to get to film. And it kind of feels like now, I mean, I, I know some people in the industry where it's like, essentially, film is catching up to games now. And, right. and it would be the other way around. But now it's like, no, no, they're looking to games to to complete their illusions. Whereas mm-hmm. game, like so many people in games are always looking to film for that. Yeah, it's, no, it's, no, that's a great point. Because yeah, it, it always has been like, games always aspire to be like movies, right? You're like, oh, the Jurassic Park, how can we make Jurassic Park the game? You know, anywhere look near that visual fidelity. Mm-hmm. And, and now it's like, films are like, hey, what's this engine stuff? And being able yeah. to previs and be able to shoot and you know, all that kind of stuff. I think that was the first thing was previs was the big thing. Yeah. But now it's not even previs. It's literally the set, like it's replacing screen projection uh, there's so much there's so many advantages to using that game engine because mm-hmm. a lot of people don't think about it, is that that those screens are kind of technically lighting the scene also hmm. so again in the mandalorian the lighting on his armor the reflections on his armor that stuff doesn't have to be added in post anymore it's literally reflecting that world right so that step doesn't it's not a problem anymore. Huh. You're, it's happening right there. And so the post is happening simultaneously. And there's, I don't even remember what, I think they call it the smart bar or something, but there's essentially this four or six people that are sitting just offset mm-hmm. and they're looking at computer monitors and they're making adjustments to what's happening on the, the virtual screens, you know, while they're adjusting lights and everything else. Hmm. And it, it really is bridging the two worlds. That's, that's crazy. Yeah, and it's in real time, right? They're sitting there like adjusting it. In real time. Yeah. They're just really amazing tools. So favorite projects, like favorite game you worked on, favorite favorite movie uh, you've done, like one each. Like, Hey, hope you're enjoying the show. If you are, please go to patreon.com backslash game dev advice. We'd love to see if you can support the show and help uh, new episodes keep coming out. That's patreon.com backslash game dev advice. Thanks. Well, it's interesting. I don't think I have a favorite movie. I mean, the, the easiest answer is just to say the most recent one I worked on is always the favorite. Yeah. Because um, I always like, on, especially on movies, I find that I, I make a thousand mistakes on everything I've done, you know, from you know going back 10 years. I, and I'm, I'm going to make a thousand mistakes on the next one. I just hope it's not the same thousand mistakes I made on the one before. Mm-hmm. It gets, you know, some things get a little easier. I'm not as nervous if I have to step on set. Yeah. But that's, you know, like film projects, I, I, I'm much more involved with more aspects of a film project. Whereas when I was in games, I, I was working in games at a time when I did handle quite a bit on a game, but I was still part of, I was a smaller part of a team as opposed to being the driving force. Right. Um, but in terms of favorite game, this is, this is an interesting question because um, my favorite games, looking back just in general, not just on the things I've worked on, mm-hmm. are games like Super Mario Brothers, Legend of Zelda. Yeah. Like I really like those kind of games. I mean, I really love them. I look forward to them. I buy a console just to play that kind of game mm-hmm. or, or like Metroid, something like that. And I, and I realized when I worked on a game called Psyops, which is a really great game. And I worked on yep. that at Midway. Brian Eddy. Uh, yeah, I think, yeah, Brian Eddy. A uh, really, really great game. It's probably the highest like Metacritic score of any game I ever worked on. The problem with working on a game like that, which is totally a game that I would have played is I know everything. 
everything when I have to play it later. So I don't really have the urge to play it because I've seen everything. Right. So I kind of came to the realization that I didn't really want to work on a game that I absolutely was going to love to play because it would spoil. Like, I don't really want to work on a Legend of Zelda game. Yeah, you see behind the curtain, right? I, I see behind the curtain and also I won't necessarily want to experience it. And it's such an amazing, those kind of games are such an amazing experience. And so looking back, even though when I worked that, I was like, I don't want to work on a baseball game. Like this is, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm, I, I love baseball and I love sports games. But like, do I really want to work on a baseball game? What I found is going back and pl- and playing games that I actually worked on, I probably spend more hours and had far more fun playing Slugfest after the fact than anything else I worked on. <laughs> That's because great. it's, I could play against a friend or, yeah. or a relative. I could, you know, and nowadays you can play online against somebody. It's always kind of new the way that sports games can always be a little bit new. Yeah. Or even, I, I think I would have been fine playing or working on a game like Mortal Kombat or Street Fighter. Mm-hmm. Because again, it's not campaign based where oh, all the right, right. Heard. I'm not discovering new things right. like Resident Evil I love. It wouldn't necessarily, I mean, it'd be great to work on it, but I kind of want to experience Yeah, game. like, you know, the cutscenes coming up next where this is going to be right, revealed, right. right? You know, those kind of linear games. Yeah, that makes sense. So I would say probably Slugfest Part 2 was my favorite game to work on. Mm -hmm. Because again, I was able to play it the most. And also that was the game where we had so much stuff done already. It was a slightly looser schedule. And um, we got to have a little bit more fun on the environment team side. And we created all these fantasy stadiums. Um, And that was was fun. Yeah, to do something new and really, you know, because you feel like your creativity is a little bit stifled on a sports game when you're doing something realistic. Mm -hmm. So... uh, we were able to sort of do that. So what are you curious right now about, you know, the game industry and the film industry again, right? Because these are two different industries with a lot of overlap and there's a lot of things changing with COVID and and all that stuff. Perennially curious about what Nintendo does. Like whatever Nintendo is going to do. Something came out today, didn't it? I I heard. I I don't, I heard that there was going to be some announcement of some different kind of, of, uh, of switch or something, but I don't know what happened today. Some drop of like an older prequel to Zelda, something, something. Oh yeah. I heard something about that. Into that. Yeah. I just really like what they do because, again, especially as I get older, I don't, and I'm so busy, I don't have the time to play games that much. Mm-hmm. So, like, if I buy a console now, in the in the span of five years, maybe I'll play five games for that console. Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe ten if I'm lucky, which is only one or two a year. Right. Right. Yeah. It's not many. And um, in the last year, the only game I've played front to back was Ori and the and the Will of the Wisps, which was just stunningly incredible. Yeah. Like that game is so great. And that's on the Xbox. Just amazing. Great experience. I mean, I think I played through it in a couple of weeks and just loved every second of it. Cool. But yeah, in terms of interest in the industry, I am interested in these new consoles. I'm I'm curious, you know, how they're I'm, I'm interested in this new Xbox. I'm interested, you know, PS5 yeah. seems interesting as well. Like they're so powerful. I'd I'd love to see a game that's actually using like real-time ray tracing mm-hmm. and see if, if that actually has an impact on gameplay. Because again, things like Unreal are not doing ray tracing, but they look so amazing anyway. Yeah. I mean, graphically the demos are amazing, but um mm-hmm. curious how that actually turns into a game. Like wh- what that actually Raises means. the bar, changes the experience yeah because yeah. you have things like you know the nathan drake games you know the uncharted and they look incredible mm-hmm. but at some level i get bored with them because i'm just playing a movie but it's it's kind of playing itself and i'm making little decisions whereas i'm more i prefer a zelda type experience where i'm kind of in control of everything yeah as opposed to so much watching and you know button mashing here and there yeah kind of being on the rails um that you just yeah kind of going along and um god the e3 days i i think about that um 
there was a year in between MKs when you weren't under the stress and you weren't demoing and you weren't talking to the press. Uh-huh. And uh, I think one of those years, I don't remember if you were there. Are you talking about when we were at the Cabo Cantina? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that was amazing. And like Tara Reed comes stumbling out of the bathroom, drunk out of a bar. I know. It's like, it's two for one in LA. Like, how big is LA? Like, how many bars? I know. Are of course, where's Tara going to be when it's a two for one night here at Sunset Strip at the Cabo? Yeah. Oh, that was, yeah, that was really interesting. But that was like our plays. It was just like all right so like i had yeah. no stress we were staying at some half-ass hotel like on sunset strip yep. and going to the show and then just hitting the uh the two for one happy hour starting at four and she comes stumbling out we're like yeah this is la uh, like we hit the saddle yep. ranch later and um right. drink some red bulls and vodkas and blow our hearts up but uh yeah that was <laughs> that was fun like those were those were fun times i, I actually miss i miss that part of those those sort of like exhales in the game yeah, industry like exactly. you just crunch for a while now you get to go to SIGGRAPH or a GDC or E3 mm-hmm. and you get to connect with people you used to work with yep. or people you or you finally get to just commune with people that you regularly work with but never get to hang out because yeah. they have lives and kids and schedules. And so now you're here for a few days and just blow off a little steam. Yeah. It, I really, really enjoyed it. It was good to bond. It was good to, like I said, exhale. Yeah. No, um, that's, that's a great metaphor. Yeah. Because it was always, there were so, so many times where it was just, it was just, just a grind and there was this pressure and you were just, had to be on, you know, all the time. You, all you the know. time. So yeah. like, I used to love like doing doing media tours or like just yeah. anytime I could just get away for a little bit. Like LA, it's it's a good exhale, yeah. And it was fun to do it in LA because LA was kind of exciting, especially when I lived in Chicago. But then, um, you know, when I also I actually always preferred the trade shows that were in like New Orleans or New York mm-hmm. or somewhere smaller because they were more walkable. And like you know, yeah. LA is it's tough to be walkable. It's so it's so spread out, but it's it's also stimulating and there's a lot of stuff going on. Mm-hmm. So that was also fun. But I, I just remember there were times when like you know I'd want to be hanging out sunset strip and you're at e3 at, at the you know staples center right. or whatever convention and then like you know it's it's five o'clock on a friday and you're leaving the convention center now it's going to take you an hour an hour and a half <laughs> to get to hollywood and it's 10 miles away yeah <laughs> because the traffic would be so bad it was just crazy right um well and the funny thing too is like those were times before uber and lyft right so, so like they were like pe- they absolutely people listening may not know this but like you just couldn't get a taxi like they're just parts of la right. and parts of things you're just like i used to be like i'll just go out and get a taxi people just laugh at me and i'm like holy shit there's like nobody because it's so spread out, right? This is so, so spread, spread out. out. Yeah. And you know, as, once I moved here, it was much different because then I was driving from Orange County up to LA. What about threats to the game industry? Threats to the film industry? Like, like, what are you worried about? Very different in threats in both, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. The biggest threat that I see to the game industry are, and I, and again, you know, I might not be the target market anymore for games. I mean, I played a lot of games in my day. And I love video games, yeah. but I just don't play as many as I used to. But the biggest problem that I have with the current generation of games is when I buy a game and I come home from Best Buy or I get something from Amazon or GameStop or wherever it is, and I put that game in, mm-hmm. I want to click start and I want to play the game. <laughs> no 60 gig I download? Cannot, I, I don't want to wait overnight for this thing to download i want to play it right fucking now yeah exactly or at least within five minutes right and i now i have fiber internet at home so everything is blisteringly fast almost instant still i'm waiting (laughs) i don't want to update i want the option to not update at the very least like i want to play and i just want to say you know what i will update this tonight leave me alone yeah yeah like i and I cannot have, I can't pop that game in and not be able to play that game. I have literally, there, there, I'm trying to think of what game it was. I think it was Gears of War 5. And uh-huh. I bought it and I was going to play it with my nephew. And my nephew came over and he's he's huge into Halo and everything. And I'm like, hey, Gears 5, I'm buying this. The two of us play. Yeah. We pop it in. We couldn't <laughs> play the game. For like, I mean, it was like going to take three hours for whatever I was trying to download. Uh-huh. And, you know, I've got him for like three hours for the evening before, <laughs> before my brother's come to take him up. So 
we ended up playing another game. I ended up not playing Gears 5 for like three months. <laughs> I think that's a major problem. Yeah. And maybe people are okay with it now, but it's a, it's broken. It's completely broken. Yeah. You know, and right. that was the advantage councils had was like, you didn't have that lag, that delayed gratification. Right. But now councils have basically turned into PC games like that way. So. They basically have. And, you know, obviously the experience is bigger and richer. And yeah. oddly enough, I'm not into that significantly larger experience anymore either. Mm -hmm. There's games I really want to play, but they're just too big. And so I'm not going to take the investment. Yeah. Like I don't have a hundred hours, right? I can't do that. I I just don't have a hundred hours. I'd rather play 10 games that are 10 hours a piece. I'd rather pay a little bit less for them, but buy more of them, right? That's what I'd rather do. And I see the problems for the industry is that, I mean, I know there are a lot of downloadable games that are smaller. I mean, Mm -hmm. Ori was kind of the perfect length, the most recent one, I think, I think it took me 18 hours or 20 hours to finish it, okay. you know, to, to a really good level of, you know, 95% completion and finish the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And it was, that, that's about right. It's about as big as I want to go. And I didn't even know it was going to be that long for me. Yeah. Themes around too, right? Cause you can download these right. smaller games and uh, smaller once games, you download it and then you can just get in and play it and you're not, come back three mm-hmm. hours later. But the, the big threats there is is that is those kind of things. I don't see the film industry being much of a competition to the game industry. I think they're they're pretty side by side. Mm-hmm. But in terms of biggest threats to the film industry, I think COVID is is yeah. massive problem yeah, to the film industry. Right. And strangely enough, I think I'll use the term film industry just very specifically for a second, which is films as opposed to TV shows. So I mm. think or series, I think the biggest threat to the film industry is actually series. Series are so well done now. Yeah. And so, you know, like so they have big budgets and everybody wants to watch them. People won't take an hour and a half to watch a movie anymore, but they will binge for 12 hours of one series, <laughs> right? It's so strange. Yeah, it is weird. Um, yeah. That, that little uh, in-between you know, I'm sort of facing this idea that I may have to end up working a series, which I guess I wouldn't mind, but I do prefer the art form of film, the shorter, you know, one and a half to two and a half yeah, hours. Tell a story in that period of time, right? In, yeah, I'm, I'm into that. And what I see, for the most part, disappearing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, a, and the indie film industry possibly disappearing because if there's no movie theater anymore, the incentive to make this, you know, $50,000, $200,000 movie yeah. that comes out and it blows everybody away, it makes $100 million, that's kind of gone. Oh, right. If right. there's no, if there's no, I mean, I guess there's the video on demand, but I don't see the Blair Witch Project. Blair, that's exactly what I was thinking of. Like the Blair Witch Project, yep. it just came out of nowhere and made a gazillion dollars. And it makes a bunch of money. And then, and then you basically are, you know, you, you are able to get into the game very, you know, very small and actually get a windfall, at, you know, for your effort. Yeah. Kind of hard to do that now. It doesn't seem, it, what I, I was thinking about the other day was that the film industry has sort of done this, this full circle. It started out with these like silent filmmakers that were kind of independent. It was like a wild west of filming. Mm-hmm. And then the studio, came up and everybody worked for the studio right you were on contract as an actor director oh, yeah. 15 writers and everything you did you didn't necessarily get royalties you got paid for your job mm-hmm. you did the movie and then they owned it forever right yeah. and if you went broke after that well tough cookies you know you're broke mm-hmm. but you know in the 50s 60s right if united artists comes out and these artists band together and they're like no we want um, royalties for royalties. our money yeah, yeah we, we want to share in how well these things do and i also don't want to be your slave anymore and yeah. that was good and then we got these amazing 1970s 1980s movies that um, that came out of that and even some 60s stuff. And now we're kind of back. We started one where like Netflix, Amazon, and you know, HBO, Warner, they, they own everything. Mm-hmm. They own you, you do it for a fee and there's no royalties. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very different structure. And I think that's good for lots of types of entertainment, but it's also not as good for other entertainment. Yeah. You know, not as good for, for rewarding the creators. Mm-hmm. You know, but but maybe it is. We'll see. I'm you know, yeah. I'm just now starting to make features that are actually being sold. So I'll let you know in six months. <laughs> what about AR, VR, MR, all this kind of crazy tech? Interestingly enough, I'm actually 
I'm more into AR and MR mm-hmm. personally, um, with the exception of I like the idea of VR for live experiences. Um, for video okay. games, I, I imagine I would be into it. The problem is I, I a little bit have a problem with motion sickness on things. Oh, frame rate. And yeah. yeah, frame rate could be an issue, like especially I'm really sensitive to fast motion on the sides of my eyes. Hmm. But the idea just right off the surface, the idea like augmented reality and mixed reality, like I, I really like that stuff because I, I do love the idea of there sort of being this like this layer of information that I could place over the world mm-hmm. in circumstances. Like, I, I mean, even things, I didn't play Pokemon Go, but just the idea of something like that, there's a lot of interesting possibilities. Yeah. I've had a couple of game ideas to do that were sort of that augmented reality. And I mean, so funny or odd story from working in the industry, each industry, like, what do you got? Each industry. Yeah. Back at Midway, when uh, when we were there, there was a vending machine mm-hmm. that was that was like subsidized or it was cheap. It was like twenty five cents right. for a soda. And I think on the very first day, interestingly enough, the very first day I was there, all the vending machines were free. And at no joke, like day two, you had to pay for things. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like literally day two, you right. had to pay. For People are- and uh, <laughs> I was like, what what is going on here? I mean, it was it was not. It was a quarter for a soda. Yeah. But for the first week, I'm like, wow, twenty five cents for a sixteen ounce you know bottle of Coke or whatever is great. Yeah. And like, I feel like I gained two pounds in the first week. And so I just stopped drinking soda. <laughs> and I think everybody sort of, well, the people that didn't want to get super fat, right. they, they learned the same thing. So everybody was drinking, there was Aquafina in this thing. So everyone was drinking Aquafina yeah. like water. So every, every room you were in, there was always an Aquafina bottle on the desk. It was ice cold. We were constantly drinking. Yeah. I mean, we were probably single-handedly contributed to that garbage patch in the <laughs> middle of the, of the Pacific Ocean, right? Because there was so much Aquafina. So what, at some point... I don't remember who it was. It might have been Brett Rubin, but um, yeah, but I don't remember if it was him or somebody else. Just stopped throwing the bottles away. It was just stacking them up in their office. Yeah. So at some point, we started, everybody just started collecting the Aquafina bottles into big bags. And then we dumped them all in somebody's office one day. And it might have been <laughs> Brett's office. So we came there. There were just like thousands of empty Aquafina bottles all over his office. <laughs> he opens his door like what what the hell yeah it's just like it's yeah mm-hmm. um what about the film industry film industry you know i have a lot of odd stories from the film industry because you end up working with famous people right that are yeah. that kind of weird famous then you realize that they're just kind of regular people that have their own good days and bad yeah and everything else i was working on actually with a, with a mutual friend with matt hale yep. i was working on the justin bieber um world tour okay. the one from about eight years ago i think it was the believe tour mm-hmm. and we're in a we're in a meeting where we're discussing what kind of content we're going to be creating and this is right doing graphics to be on stage when things right are so, on, so, so like concerts that. are kind of a multimedia affair but for something like justin bieber's tour it was a big multimedia event. Yeah. And, I remember talking um, about that, yeah. Yeah, and there, there was a director there who's a big-time director now who's actually a creative director of the show. Like, for me, like, my dream is to, I mean, especially this is years ago, my dream is to move. I had already done short films and music videos, but it was to continue to where I am now, like, to actually yeah. making. I remember being in a meeting and, you know, talking to to somebody who was, you know, much higher up, and we're looking at something, and the guy's telling me, well, what do you think, right? And I'm hearing this guy who's this director, and he's asking my thoughts on something, yeah. which is really cool, and I'm like, wow, all right, so I'm, I'm kind of here. I'm in the room. And, and so I tell him and he's like, okay, there's somebody like, all right, well, I, I, I like what Mayron said. I, like that was, that was super cool. And then like, he gets a phone call mm-hmm. 
And he's talking to somebody and it, it turns out it was Bruce Willis on the phone. And, <laughs> you know, and they were discussing something in a previous movie they had shot. And then he gets off the phone. And he's like, oh, blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, wow. Like, I'm like one step away. And I was super like geeked out about that. Not to yeah. say I haven't met Willis. I wasn't involved with that movie. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, weird and surreal, you know, <laughs> tangent. But that's not even really necessarily the film industry for me. That was when I was working like in, in just graphic stuff. Yeah. Just totally tangential. Just like I, I'm listening to Greenlight's the uh matthew mcconaughey green? green lights it's a matthew mcconaughey book just kind of just like oh, okay. talking about philosophies and ideas and funny stories mm-hmm. and stuff and you know the audio version is entertaining because it's in, in his voice right so it's kind of oh yeah kind of a bit of a performance there but you, you know you just hear all these like crazy things and stuff like that so um i, I worked on a mockumentary um, you worked on a mockumentary okay yeah mockumentary feature film mm-hmm. based on a character that i created some years earlier um but I, I co-directed this film with a guy named dan lanigan who is actually a star of a show called prop culture on uh, disney plus okay and yes yeah, so i worked on that with him but interestingly enough you had mentioned matthew mcconaughey and um dan lanigan knows matthew mcconaughey's brother mm-hmm. and matthew mcconaughey's brother's name is rooster mcconaughey yep. he is you, you've probably heard of him so yeah. um so dinner with rooster rooster is i don't want to say a large in life character but he's just a character yeah like yeah. through through and he literally that person that you see on tv that literally is who rooster is like it's not an act it's not anything like yeah. if you ever watch king of the hill there's that one character i don't know if it is his name boomhauer but yeah. he talks with a very strange kid like rooster kind of talks exactly literally drinks miller light all day like <laughs> all day and i don't know if you know this but i think it's i think it's public knowledge his son's name is miller light mccoy <laughs> I'm not joking. So I'm sitting there with dinner and he's talking all about this. And he's literally got like a Miller Lite in his pocket for when he runs out of one. Right. And so we're at dinner and I'm like, what is going on here? Like, is this guy for real? But that's literally who is. And you know, he's not drunk or anything like that. He's just yeah. exacting. Yeah. And he has this unburnt cigar in his mouth all day. Right. And he kind of sounds like a boo version of Matthew McConaughey. Yeah, yeah. And it's pretty surreal. Yeah. He's a really nice guy. Like, really, he's a great guy. Yeah, and it's like um, Miller Lite is such a watered down beer. You could probably just kind of keep doing that because it's <laughs> right. low in the carbs. I, I've been known right. drinking myself. So. And you know what? He's thin. Yeah, <laughs> and he seems to be in good good health, good spirits. I, I can't, you know, maybe maybe the secret of life is Miller Lite. Yeah. Is there anything you're playing right now that you're excited about? Or you- and lately, I've actually I've only been playing casual games for the past month. I'm working on another script right now. Okay. So I'm pretty pretty absorbed with that. But so I'm just occasionally I'll play a casual game on my phone. Mm-hmm. And one of them is I think it's called like know Words with friends or something like that or something it, well i was playing words of friends actually i played a game of words with friends against alec baldwin once because he was on there <laughs> was there you got in trouble on the airplane was, was that and, yeah i think i mean it wasn't it wasn't that particular game but yeah i remember hearing like uh, someone was yelling at him to turn his phone off and he was playing words with friends and he right right no, he was like publicly playing against people and I, i'm pretty sure it was him i mean it was, the name was him and everything and then i read oh it really is alec baldwin playing <laughs> but no it's called water sort puzzle and it's kind of driving me crazy and you're just sort of mixing things so i'm not i can't say i'm excited about it but like yeah. in between if i'm waiting for something to render or if i'm sitting around like waiting for a phone call i'll, I'll pull that game up mm-hmm. and play it how did you make that transition to writing right like is that something you've always done you know to be writing scripts and, and to go from an artist to a writer right i try to briefly go go back to when i was in college like i said i got interested in film when i was in college yeah. and probably i mean i've always been interested in film my uncles had a 16 millimeter projector at home and so before there were vhs tapes like when i was a little kid they would actually be buying and selling 16 millimeter like we could watch star wars at his house because okay. he actually had a 16 millimeter version of star wars of the extra 
Exorcist or all these, you know, like they were really into horror films. So I saw Night of the Living Dead on 16 or 8 millimeter, mm. you know, when I was when I was five years old or six years old. Wow. Like I was watching these terrifying movies. But I just I that was part of my experience. And my family seemed to speak to each other in a language of film. Mm-hmm. My uncles can be a bit gruff and stuff. And so you could always connect with them if you were talking about film in some way or another. Okay. And they're not filmmakers, but they're aficionados of some sort and they have their own likes. B and grindhouse horror stuff they're really into and, and classic horror Hitchcock. I was very early introduced to that. So I was always interested in that, but I was professionally, I didn't know. Like I was interested in art and other things. And then yeah. when I got to, honestly, it got rekindled aside from the fact that my uncles were always, it was always a big thing was going to the movies. But then like Tarantino's movies uh-huh. and like Sunday became a thing in the early 90s and I think that was like you know mid 90s when I was in college that was like wow this is a thing where you could actually have a voice in making films yeah. it was not something I really considered Pulp so Fiction really, right like, like Pulp Fiction oh, is, well, yeah. Pulp Fiction I mean I had seen a lot of Scorsese films before that which you know influenced him but um, yeah. Reservoir Dogs was the one yeah okay right um, yeah so um, so I remember seeing that I was like wow like that's that really blew me away and so like I was just like oh this is something I want to do when I was hearing like especially in Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs hearing people talk in a way that I, I didn't really remember hearing hearing people talk in movies like that. And it kind of sounded a little bit like me talking with my friends, Mm -hmm. but either more sophisticated or more crime oriented in these movies. Right. It really, it sounded it resonated though right it was it resonated yeah, I think Hollywood script. yeah and so i was like wow like that would be really fun to do and at the same time i was just super interested in special effects and i had always been obsessed with star wars like from a little kid mm-hmm. i mean completely obsessed with star wars and that's movie magic right and i one of my favorite things to do would be to watch behind the scenes and all this uh, so i would i would sort of read about how movies were made and i sort of understood a lot about special effects and movie making before I did anything because I would I would read Fangoria, I would read Cinefax and everything. Mm-hmm. So then when I got to college, I took a couple of theater classes. Um, I took creative writing, okay. but not it was a major. I was an art major. Years later, I would then end up taking small seminars in different things. And there was one year that I took a seminar from I'm a B movie director. And it was like a three day seminar at a hotel yeah. that was a that was a film seminar. Like this guy is actually a film director, and he's saying, "Here's how I break down a scene. Here's how I." organized thing and this you know i worked with this guy and that guy and this is how you you got to do a sex scene you know you want to protect your action do this and it was very very nuts and bolts it wasn't yeah. artistry it was just the nuts and formula kind of like here's, here's For, the formula you yeah. craft but you know four years of film school in three days or something yeah, right yeah you know it, so it's not it's not great but you know what it was really impactful and it was a few years before i actually got into writing it how the very first thing i would say officially that i wrote was um, a friend of mine who's a stand-up comedian told me that he was working on a sitcom and he wanted to pitch the sitcom mm-hmm. and he gave me a copy of the script or a copy of this like sort of synopsis what he wanted to write and he's like and I told him I was interested in film and I said um you know, I'd be happy to write, you know, take a stab at writing an episode. And so I actually wrote an episode of the script and he loved it and he tried to get something made, but nothing ever happened. But I enjoyed that experience. I learned the form of what it looks like to write a script. Yeah. And then from there, I was working in games. Like that was when I was still in Chicago. And then I moved out here and I'm like, now I'm in LA. I'm a little closer to the film industry. Right. And But again, didn't do anything aside from I wrote animation scripts that I had done, like little short things, no dialogue or anything. Mm. Like that. In probably 2007, there was a contest to write and shoot a short film. And I didn't know the kind has been going on for a month and it was like three days before this contest so i'm like you know what it it was it was very structured and it was for um there was a movie called prom night prom prom night which was a remake of an old movie called prom Night. and the contest was to make a prom themed horror film Mm -hmm. um within these parameters and i'm like well you know i'll take sunday and i'll write this so i wrote this five-page script really quickly yeah you know threw it together really quickly you know got got help from some people and i made it and then i i I finished it like in two days like i I shot it i damn you know i wrote it i shot it i 
edit it. And then I, I actually was able to get hit it, hit the deadline. Um, mm. And I had not really edited anything before that, aside from like a demo reel. So I had got that done. And then like a, a week later, I get a call from the people of the contest. And they're like, oh, you're a finalist. Like this, we love this movie and it's all that. Wow. And unfortunately, I didn't win the whole competition, but it would just made me so excited that I just, I, w- I hadn't felt that good in a long time. Yeah. And I'm like, well, I should do something else. And then about a validation, about a right. You know, there was some kind of like, Oh wow, there's something here. Right. Yeah. Like there's something here. I made something that somebody liked. And, you know, I look back at it now and it is, you know, whatever. And, yeah. and so what I did over the course of the next year or two is I, I just said, hell, I, I bought myself a camera. I'm like, I'm going to make some music videos and see where this goes. And I'm still working in games. I'm trying to burn the candle at both ends. And, mm. but none of that was really writing yet. Yeah. And, and then uh, a friend of mine ended up hiring me to direct something that she, had written so I, I did a short film for her that she was entering into film fest and I don't know how well that one did um, but then I ended up losing my job um, in games like the game I was working on got canceled mm-hmm. and they had to lay me off so it's the tail end of the year and I decided I wasn't going to go and try to get another job until I just let the year go it was like November so I'm like let me just wait until January I look for a job again and I kind of had offers to go to a couple different places mm-hmm. And I ended up getting freelance work. And so that let me keep pushing it off. Like when I was going to go and get another job over over that time, I'm like, well, if I got this time and I've got severance pay and I'm going to be getting unemployment, I'm like, why don't I use this just like create a movie before I get back into games, did a deep dive into reading about screenwriting Mm -hmm. and and story writing in general. Mm -hmm. My brother had sent me a short story by an author named Isaac Marion, um, who's the guy who wrote Book Warm Bodies, which became a, it was actually a big zombie movie that came out Mm -hmm. in like 2010 or something. And uh, I read it and I'm like, I want to adapt his short story into a short film I ended up just contacting him via his website and I said I would like to adapt this and he just gave me he got his lawyer write me something to give me permission and I ended up spending months adapting this eight page short story into a 20 page short film script Mm -hmm. and I started literally from zero in terms of I had I had no film collaborators at that time I you know I didn't really know how to do a lot of the things that I wanted to do but I knew that Sundance deadline was like in September and it was like February and I'm like I'm gonna adapt this I'm gonna shoot this I'm gonna edit this and I'm going to get this to the Sundance deadline. Whether it gets in or not, I don't care, but I'm going to hit that deadline. Yeah. And so I learned all about screenwriting through using this. I went to the library every day and um, I just really did a deep dive into adapting uh, that short, which ended up becoming a, a film that I wrote uh, called Room Enough. It was really ambitious. I shot it over two weeks. I funded it all myself. 90% of the shots have special effects in it that I did all by myself. Ooh. And I actually did it. I edited it in two weeks. I That's what started my collaboration pretty much with, with Lana Barron, who I work with to this day. Mm-hmm. She wrote the music for the film yeah. and has a small part. It ended up getting into a film fest in Connecticut, a couple of film festivals, didn't make it to Sundance. Mm-hmm. Again, it was exciting. It won a couple of awards. Yeah, yeah more validation. Figured, right? so. Yeah, and more, more validation. I figured I could I could do this. I don't consider myself even now like a great writer yet. I, I, I consider myself still on the path of doing this and I keep wanting every project I do to be written better, deeper, more resonant with people. Yeah. And that that's what I'm doing. I mean, to me, it's, I'm never done. I'm just yeah. always trying to get better. That is kind of cool about that industry. Cause it's like, you never finish, right? You, you always keep yeah. evolving and writing. And- it's been, yeah, it's been, it's been up and down and rough. And at this point, I don't know if I would want to go back into games. Like if I had to, I think if I did, it would have to be in a very different capacity hmm. because as much as I love working a 3d and I look at some of the new tools that I get, I mean, when I see the stuff that you can do with blender nowadays, I'm just completely yeah. blown away. It's really amazing. And it's free, which is incredible, hmm. but it's just really, it's really exciting to see what's technically possible, but um, I'm already used to being able to accomplish a larger vision that I'm pushing, Mm -hmm. and it would be very hard to just be one guy that's not pushing the vision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One, uh, one person in the puzzle here versus kind of like your creative vision. Right, yeah. and it, it's not even ego driven. It's just more about like satisfaction of creation at that point. Right. 
So where can people yeah. find you online? Like website, Twitter? I am on Twitter. It's at number nine, N-U-M-B-I-R nine. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's information about my about my latest film, which is Curse of Aurora. And that's at Twitter, at Curse of Aurora. Okay. I think it's on Facebook, slash Curse of Aurora. Yeah. Um, there's a website, curseofaurora.com. People can read about it. We've got a YouTube channel, which is uh, Cult Cinema. Thanks, Mir. I really appreciate uh, talking today. I appreciate the opportunity. This was great. Thanks for listening to this episode of Game Dev Advice, the Game Developers Podcast. Go to the website at gamedevadvice.com, and you can find the show notes along with show notes for all the other episodes. Please also check out the new Patreon page at patreon.com backslash gamedevadvice. Have a lot of options up there for how you can support the show. Again, that's patreon.com backslash game dev advice. Thanks again for listening and being part of the show. Take care. Bye-bye.